Exodus 19, verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now we're going to flick towards the end of the Bible to Titus, and we're going to read the whole of chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want, to, I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive, a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's good to be with you uh, this evening. My name's Roger, Roger Mori, and one of the ministers at St Matthew's. Uh, if you're ever to visit one of the other congregations of St Matthew's, you'd normally see me there, and I lead the afternoon church congregation, which is that meets at 4.30 just before you guys uh, meet here. Uh, it'd be great if you had Titus 3 in front of you um, as I preach on that passage. <clears throat> so how do we promote the truly good life in our society? Um, when there's so many different versions of what the good life looks like and how we get it, how, how can we as Christians bring to our society a vision of the good life that's true and compelling? 
Um, the need for a clear vision of this in our society is pretty obvious because we live in a culture where people don't trust their leaders. Often that's warranted because of corruption. Uh, we live in a harsh, loveless and selfish society where it's everyone to their own. Um, we live in a culture where there is a fear of crime and so people retreat to their homes as their castles and, and then they find themselves longing for more connection with, other pe- with people. We live in a culture uh, in which people routinely overeat. Um, that, that was first century Crete. Paul wrote to Titus in Crete in chapter 1 verse 12 and he says that one of Cretans' own One of Crete's own prophets has said that Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So that could just as easily be a description of 21st century Western Western culture. How do we live as Christians in a dishonest and harsh and selfish culture? Um, How can we live and promote the truly good life in this situation? This is the kind of question that we need help with each day as we seek to live for Christ Uh, in a society that finds truth um, in all kinds of places, but rarely in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's where we're going tonight with my talk. This passage clearly shows us that believing um, the gospel is what saves us and believing the gospel is what creates the truly good life. And that's why Paul has, in this passage, a trustworthy gospel statement right in the middle of the chapter. Um, And and then he says in verse 8, he instructs Titus in verse 8 to stress uh, the gospel. Um, um, And and he says that the gospel is what leads leads to the good life. So this talk will stress the gospel. Um, Most of our time will be on that. And then at the end, we'll come back to this question of where I've started um, tonight um, in seeing how important it is that we live uh, the gospel-shaped lives in in our society. Now, before we get to this rich gospel statement, um, Paul shows that we must first face uh, the truth about ourselves and what we are really like. Uh, Some hard truths about about uh, uh, what we are really like. Otherwise, we'll never think that we need to turn to God as our saviour. Um, we won't think that we need him to rescue us or nor to trust in him as our saviour. So see the truth about ourselves here um, in verse 3, chapter, chapter 3 of Titus, verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures... We lived in malice, malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Um, Paul here is describing the, the common human condition uh, of our sinfulness here. It's not a problem that's just peculiar to Crete here that he's talking about here, where, where Titus is. And it, he includes himself here too, doesn't he, by saying at one time we, we too, um, were foolish and disobedient. Before we can know God as our saviour, our relationship um, with God was a complete mess. Notice he says in this verse, we were foolish and disobedient. A fool is someone who says in his heart, it says in Psalm 14, who says in his heart there is no God. 
And in Psalm 14, and here in Titus as well, that, that's not talking about the avowed atheist. It's someone who lives as if God doesn't exist, ignoring God. That's, that's the definition of the fool. The fool rejects God's rule um, and they want to rule their own life. And that rejection of God affects everything else. It's all, it's all here in this one verse. It affects our thinking because he says we were foolish and deceived. It affects our behaviour because he says here we were disobedient to God and enslaved to behaving in that foolishness and disobedience. Um, it affects our desires, Paul says. The desires that drive this behaviour are, as Paul says a little bit more in Ephesians 2, cravings of our flesh, all kinds of passions and desires that come from our sinful nature, that flow from the depths of our hearts. But this rejection of God, this foolishness, also affects our relationships. So instead of love, he talks here about malice and envy and hatred. Now, we don't like hearing this negative assessment of our true nature, do we? And we might even think that it's a bit harsh. Living in malice and envy, really? Um, They are strong words. But, you know, when we consider that malice is um, wishing bad things might happen to people, and when we consider that envy um, is wishing that some good things hadn't happened um, to to some other people, can any of us really say um, that we've never deep down had something of that attitude uh, in, our, in our hearts? But I put it to you that one of the reasons um, that we don't like hearing this assessment of our true nature is also because of the influence of our Western culture. We, you know, we are so much on about self-esteem and self-image and about feeling good about myself. And so we don't want to hear this kind of reality in verse 3. We pretend we're all wonderful people and we ignore all of the evidence around us to the contrary. Not only evidence around us, but the, the evidence within ourselves. But you know, if the Bible's assessment of our true nature is true, then it's actually a good thing. We can give up that constant and tiring managing of our image before other people to try and always look good. And we can stop proudly pretending that there is no problem. Um, between us and God and with, the state, and with the state of our hearts. Well, um, from verse 4, um, this is the start of this great gospel statement we have in this um, chapter. And we have one of those wonderful but God phrases in the Bible. But God does something about our foolishness and our disobedience. And here is this trustworthy gospel saying that Titus is to stress so that those who believe the gospel would be devoted to doing what is good. It's all about how God saves us and why he saves us. And he starts by saying that God um, saving us shows his kindness to us. Um, That's that's evident from what we've already seen just in verse 3, isn't it? That if he chooses to act and come to the aid of sinners who are disobedient and reject God, that's got to be an act of kindness. And in fact, the other key feature of this trustworthy saying in verses 4 to 7 is it highlights the character of the God who saves us. Not only is he kind, but look at the other words that are here in that saying. He's loving, he is merciful, he is generous... He is gracious uh, towards us. It's a rich statement in so many ways. It's actually packed with ideas 
that help us to grasp what God's salvation is like and why he saves, why he saves us. Ideas that Paul unpacks in more detail in others of his, of his letters, but he summarises here. And he shows us how the whole Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit, are involved in the work of salvation. So I thought it would be most helpful tonight to let that be the frame um, by which we have a look at these, these verses. The Trinity, the Father, Son and Spirit. And remember, all along, where are we heading? Titus is to stress these things um, because believing the gospel is what promotes the good life. Well, firstly, um, the Father is merciful. See it in verse 5? He, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Imagine God's deciding whether to save us. Imagine, like, you might do this like I do, that when you're facing a decision, you get a piece of paper, you put a line down the middle, two columns, and on one side you put all the pros for a certain decision, on the other side you put all the cons. Well, what's on the cons side? What are the reasons why God shouldn't save us, why he should condemn us? Well, foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious being hated and hating. Um, there's a lot of other things that could be added to that list, isn't there? <laughs> the Bible shows us that. Uh, what's on the pros column? What's in the list of reasons why God should save us? Nothing. That when he looks at us, there's no reason why God should save us. Um, but then um, God writes across the page in a bold, permanent marker, my kindness, my love, my mercy. He didn't look at the page and conclude that on, the, on balance we're not too bad. He didn't look at the page and say, oh, there's potential here for some self-improvement. He saw a thousand reasons to condemn us. What does verse 5 say? He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, um, but because of his mercy. It couldn't be clearer, could it? Here is the reason why God can accept anyone. Here are the grounds any of us can have, any, can have confidence that God accepts us and that we have hope and a future. God has mercy towards sinners. And, you know, um, it, this means it's really worth us asking ourselves... How would I complete this sentence? God accepts me because. And everyone answers that question somehow. And somehow. And if there's any thought that it is because of something that I have done, then I am not saved. So you see, saving faith involves stripping away faith in ourselves and putting trust in God's mercy, our, our true and only hope. And, and if, you ha if you think that you're inherently acceptable in some way, or, or perhaps more likely just that God should accept everyone regardless of how we, of how we treat him, it's kind of like God's job, <laughs> um, well, you're not saved. See, we need to reread verse 3, don't we, and recognise that because of what we are really like, we deserve God's justice. That his kindness doesn't cancel out his justice. We deserve God's punishment for our sin. God must be just. But our salvation begins with the mercy of God the Father. This is important. His salvation 
all begins with God's rich mercy towards us. He took pity on our poor state and in his kindness and mercy, rich mercy, the Bible calls it, um, he rescued us. So, so to, the, to the grace of the Son, we've seen the mercy of the Father, to the grace of the Son, especially in verses 4 and 7. There was a point in time, verse 4 puts it, when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. His kindness and love has been there all along. Kindness and love are at the centre of God's being. But in history, this kindness and love appeared. At that moment, on the first Christmas day, his kindness and love became visible. People um, had heard of the love of God down through the centuries, through the prophets, and then this kindness and love was incarnate. It could be seen and it could be touched like the Apostle, Apostle John says. We have seen and we have touched um, the word, Jesus. And his kindness and love um, reached a climax as God gave what was most precious to him, giving his own son to live as a human, to die as a criminal. So how great is the love and kindness of God? Um, see the crib. See the cross. Look at God giving his only um, beloved son. And then in verse 7, in just two phrases, what Jesus has won for us at the cross is captured beautifully for us. When we choose to um, ignore and disobey God, we become his enemies. We become his rebels and who are under his judgment. Our future was condemnation uh, and death. And before there could be any reconciliation between us and God, bringing back into relationship, um, God had to deal with our disobedience in some way. And the penalty for our rebellion had to be paid. And so in kindness and love, God the Father sent his Son to die in our place. And the Son willingly came um, to die in perfect obedience to his Father's will. And Paul says here that as a result of Jesus' death, what does verse 7 say? We have been justified. It's a legal term. It means to be declared right. The charge against us is that we're guilty for our foolish disobedience. We stand before our judge condemned. But when the kindness of God, but then the kindness of God intervenes. The sentence we deserve is passed on him. He dies in our place. He bears our penalty for us. And as a result, the verdict against us now is no longer condemned. We're innocent. We're justified. And it's the kindness and love of God that makes that possible. And then secondly, as a result, we receive life. Verse 7 again, having been justified by his grace we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. See, to receive God's salvation is to now have the hope of eternal life. So justification is focused on the present. I am now right with God. But it's also forward-looking because having been justified by his grace, we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now, um, now heirs are children with the right, the rights of an inheritance. Um, we are now in Christ, God's children, brought into his family, and we look forward to an eternal uh, heavenly inheritance 
um, that the Father will give us. Now, let's just illustrate this. In, in my school years, I had a friend that I spent a fair bit of time with. He, I enjoyed meals at his home and sometimes I stayed overnight on a Saturday night. We enjoyed heaps of um, social tennis at games of snooker on their, on their full-size snooker table. Um, I was welcomed by his parents for the sake of their son. It was my relationship with him that meant that I sat down at their dinner table, that I enjoyed their company and that I stayed uh, overnight. Well, how much more does God delight to welcome us to his family for the sake of his son? Our standing before God has changed Um, Right here and now, for the sake of his son, we are brought into his family as his children now and we look forward um, to a bright eternal inheritance. Oh, sure, we're still waiting for the final judgment day. but Because we are now justified, then on that day we'll hear the verdict not guilty. But on that day we won't just be acquitted. Our hope, Paul says here, is eternal life. Our hope is the life of the coming age and all that that holds for us. We'll have a new life in a renewed world. Far better than even the best experience you could ever imagine having in this life. So our future was eternal death. But in Christ it is now eternal life. And such is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to us. Well, what about the work of the Spirit in salvation? We mustn't neglect the work of the Spirit in our salvation. Paul certainly doesn't here. In fact, in verses 5 to 6, it's the first thing he mentions after describing the mercy of God the Father. Um, You know, if he was going to moving through things chronologically, we would kind of expect, wouldn't we, the mercy of God the Father, then to the appearance of the Son, and then to the Father and the Son pouring out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. But it seems that Paul puts the spirit early on here um, because in our experience of salvation, we need the prior work of the spirit to open up our blind eyes and to renew our dead hearts so that we can put our trust in Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us. And that's the work of the spirit that's highlighted here. We'll see that very, very shortly. But just to be sure, the work of the spirit in the Bible is intimately connected Um, with the work of Christ and um, the Spirit is poured out on us, Paul says here, generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And we receive the Spirit from the Father and the Son, not like a pouring out of a cup of water, but like standing under a waterfall with a constant rush flowing, uh, flowing over us. The Spirit is poured out in full to those who believe. And we receive um, God's fatherly presence in our hearts um, by the Spirit. But the work of the Spirit here is described as rebirth and renewal. It's two words again, rebirth and renewal. Rebirth is often translated regeneration. We know what that's about. We are familiar with it when we see signs in bushland or, you know, on dunes saying, um, you know, don't walk here because the... You know, it's being regenerated. It's an ecological kind of term. We're used to thinking of it in terms of improvement of vegetation. But biblical regeneration is more than a bit of improvement. Rebirth captures it well. 
We are dead and then reborn. It's not that we are living badly and then we look better and live a little bit better after regeneration. No, we are dead in our sin and then we are reborn. We are born again. And Paul, Paul even says here, it's the washing of rebirth. You see, Jesus' cleansing of our sins, his washing of us clean is so thorough that we are reborn. We are washed clean. We're given a new life that we can now walk in and live in by God's power, by his spirit. Well, the word, the word renewal here describes the same kind of radical transfer, transformation. Um, we often use the word renewal, like, you know, I might renew a library book, um, if I remember to do it. Um, <laughs> and it means, it, it means to repeat. I renew my library book and it means I simply continue to receive um, what I received before. Um, but when God uh, saves us and pours out his spirit on us, it's not merely newness in time, but it's newness in nature. Something completely new is happening. Remember verse 3, we were deceived and enslaved. We couldn't turn to God because we were in chains. We didn't even want to turn to him because we, we were, uh, we were um, deceived. So when the kindness and love of God appeared in Jesus opening the door of eternal life, it made absolutely no difference to us. You see, left to ourselves, none of us would enter because we're deceived and we're enslaved. Unless we become new people with new hearts and new desires. That's what Murray Capel's going to be speaking on. It's really going to be a really good topic. It's here, it's here in Titus. When the Spirit works in us, um, we will want eternal life. We will want to walk through the door that Christ opens for us. Uh, the language of rebirth and renewal is another way that this passage shows us that if we're to be saved, um, then God must do it. He's not only done all that is needed in the person of Jesus in history, he gives his spirit um, to give us new life. And just as a baby can't decide to be born, neither can we decide um, to be born again. But in God's kindness and love, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Of course, we might describe becoming a Christian um, from our side as a decision to follow Jesus. Fair enough. Um, but the inner work of the Spirit is what, is what makes it possible. So God, in his kindness and love, has provided every step of the way for our salvation. He not only sends his Son in history, he pours out the Spirit to um, convince and convict us. And all of this to rescue us once and for all time uh, from sin and death. That's how kind uh, God is. And that's how wonderful and how complete is our salvation um, that God has given us. It's a salvation that we can be confident in because God has done it. It's salvation that, um, that uh, moves us to humility um, before God. And it's a salvation that leads to praise and to love God for all of his wonderful kindness to us. So we've had this beautiful summary of the kindness of God to people who don't deserve it. But as I've said, this trustworthy saying is set in the middle of chapter 3 and Paul next tells Titus and us what we need to do with this trustworthy saying. Look at it in verse 8, key verse in this chapter. This is a trustworthy saying, 
And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. These things to be stressed are the things of the gospel that we've been hearing about here so far tonight. And we've heard about them for most of this sermon because Paul says here to stress these things. Um, The gospel saves anyone. And now we see too that the gospel moves those who believe um, to live a truly good life. And so we ought to stress it. Um, It's fitting today that we've commissioned Tom uh, at St Matthew's. So this morning at the 11am service, we commissioned Tom Conyers to be the new minister of the 11am congregation. And in his ministry, Tom needs to keep stressing the gospel to us. And he will relish your prayers for him that he will keep on stressing the the gospel, just as all the ministers at St Matthew's would, would, would relish you praying that for us. But, you know, there's a sense in which we just set the tone for all of us because all of us need to be on about stressing the gospel, stressing it as excellent and profitable for everyone, as Paul says here. Uh, And we are to avoid what is unprofitable and useless, futile arguments that we can fall into which have nothing to do with the gospel that Paul mentions there in verse 9. So we're to stress the gospel and avoid controversies. And, and we're, we're not only to agree about the gospel, to kind of give nodding approval to it as we hear about it. If we're going to stress the gospel, we need to keep talking about it, don't we? Um, the, way, the way we never move away from it is by stressing it. And so we apply it to our own hearts. We keep talking about it in our church family because, because it's what we most need. And if we get distracted or caught up by other things then Paul would say to us, and we need to remember this, he would say to us, well, in every place and every time, with everyone, stress these things. Stress the gospel more than we stress other things and anything else. So get into the habit of talking about the gospel with each other. And if we keep doing that here, proclaiming the goodness of Jesus with each other, um, then it seeps Um, out into the rest of our lives as we talk about him in our homes and in our workplaces and schools and our community groups at at university wherever wherever we are and it's by stressing the gospel that those who believe paul says will be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good strong theme in this chapter and in and in titus so let me um, finish here our final point is this this gospel-changed life um, is meant to overflow to others. You know, as we aim to um, speak about how unique and wonderful Jesus is with those around us, what helps us to gain a hearing from others is actually our devotion to doing good. Paul says as much in chapter 2 when he talks about um, Christian slaves, that by their submission to to their masters, they will make the teaching about Christ our Saviour, attractive. So here's something for us to think about. I wonder, are are you viewed with suspicion or even hatred um, by anyone because you're a Christian? 
it might not be happening right now, but I can tell you, if you keep on living a godly life in Christ Jesus, it will happen sooner or later. And I want to say, don't lose your nerve. Don't cave into fear. And there's a particular thing that Titus 3, I think, helps us with here. So let me use myself as an example. I have experienced being sidelined and shut out from discussions in the staff office tea room, not this staff office tea room. <laughs> um, in, a off, in a workplace, um, because um, uh, the, being sidelined and shut out from a discussion um, in the tea room, um, because people knew I was Christian. I was offering a perspective that came from a Christian point of view, and I was completely shut out. And that was hard, it was alienating. Um, but here's what I learned about working in those kinds of workplaces. Rather than retreat and keep quiet, remember that how you live in the workplace, especially over a period of time, um, it's watched and it's noticed. And if you show integrity, if your life matches what you say, um, then it will be noticed. So keep on talking about Jesus and keep on showing integrity as you live a life that matches what you say. Keep taking small steps of faith and love, living a truly good life um, that touches others in small um, but decisive ways. Um, And we pray, impacting them for eternity. What does that look like? It's right there there at the start um, of this chapter in verses 1 to 2. Look at it for a moment. In fact, read it again later. (laughs) What does it look like to live like that? Remind the people, Paul says to Titus, to the Christians there, remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always gentle to everyone. See, the gospel saves us And the gospel changes us. And it changes us from being like the people that we saw at the start of tonight in verse 3 to being like the people here in verses 1 to 2 at the start of this chapter. And it's that sort of change really stands out in our culture. The gospel changes us to be like God as from our lives flows the kindness the love, the mercy, the grace, the generosity that God has shown us. So what kind of clear vision for the good life does our society need? Where can we find a clear vision for our lives together in our society that's truly excellent and profitable for everyone? Our society desperately needs the kind of clear vision that the gospel gives us that gives us a clear vision of what we are like before God and of our desperate need for his rescue and a rescue that the gospel holds out for us and that also changes us. Our society desperately needs that, the gospel that saves and the gospel that changes us. So this year, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep talking about Jesus. He's the most important a person in our life, because you can be sure that the things of the gospel are excellent and profitable for everyone. And keep living gospel-changed lives. 
uh, so that in every way you make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Shall we pray for God's help about that? Let's pray. Our loving and our kind Heavenly Father, we do um, thank you for your rich mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us by your Spirit to grasp your mercy, to be assured that we're in a right relationship with you, having the hope of eternal life. And by the grace of the gospel, please keep moving us um, to live a life that is devoted to doing what is good, to speak and to live out the gospel wherever we are so that others may be saved and your name be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.